You may be seated. Thank you for that special offering of music this morning. So returning and rebuilding, returning and rebuilding, it's a major theme in the Old Testament. Think of how God has called His people, they've come under His hand of discipline in the Old Testament through the exile, and then He brings them back to rebuild, to rebuild a it's a city, rebuild the walls around the city, to rebuild the temple and the place of worship. Even as I, I, I mention this, maybe you're starting to hear why I wanted to take us back to some Old Testament history uh, this morning into the book of Ezra, where we find this movement back to God, um, back to being the people of God in the place of worship uh, that He has made, has desired for them. So returning and rebuilding upon God's promises. And so Ezra, Ezra is a faithful priest. He's a devoted scribe. And we are not actually introduced to Ezra until chapter 7 of, of the book by his name. But we know he's someone to listen to. And chapter 7 tells us that Ezra set his heart to study the law of God and to do it, to teach his statutes and rules uh, in Israel. So the Lord was with him and provided for him and the people. So we're going to read a good portion of Ezra 8 this morning, not, not all of it at once. But in the first 14 verses of this chapter, there, there's a list of leaders and the number of men and families that went with Ezra on this second wave of exiles back to Judah and to Jerusalem specifically. But as they come together they, to begin this journey, Ezra makes an, an assessment. You can kind of picture a military general doing a pass and review, looking, looking things over, and he discovers something quite uh, interesting. And so that's what we're going to pick up at verse 15 there of chapter 8. Actually, before we do that, let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, you are working your word to perform it. And as we gather together this morning, or as we watch, participate from from other places. Lord, it is your spirit that unites us and we all come under the inspiration, the authority of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak faithfully now through your servant, um, that we would hear and apply with the help of your spirit. Lord, we need this word. You know what it is we need on this day. And so we look to you to feed us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 8, beginning of verse 15. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnatan, Yariv, Elnatan, Natan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Yohariv and Elnatan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place of Kasaphia telling them what to do, what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place, Kasaphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20, besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. 
These were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahavan, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. We'll just stop there on the reading for a moment. Uh, as I was reading this text, uh, maybe some of you have heard of the name Ken Davis. Ken Davis is a Christian comedian, and uh, I can remember, uh, it's probably late middle school, early high school, listening to Ken, who would make light of just some of the fun, ordinary circumstances of life, uh, to try and lighten things up a little bit, but also so we see the, the beauty of life uh, in Christ. And he tells a story about walking into a public restroom. Don't worry, it doesn't get any grosser than that. And he squeezes into the stall and he sees that dispenser on the side of the stall and it's got those little uh, thin sheets in it that you put on the toilet seat. And so he takes, or he reaches for one of these things and it rips. And so he reaches for another one and it rips. And he keeps ripping these things out of the dispenser until finally, very carefully, and you can picture him just animated doing this, pulling out one of these little strips. And he reads on the side of the dispenser, for your protection, and he kind of looks at this thing and he starts, he starts waving it around. Like, really, I don't think this is accomplishing what, what it's supposed to do. Really? For your protection. Um, not quite what he had in mind. But I think, what do we look to? What do we consider for protection? Who do we look to for protection? Um, and we don't have to look very far this morning, do we? Because we're seeing and we're wearing, maybe with a little discomfort, uh, protection on our faces. Face masks, hand sanitizer, little toilet seat covers, um, locks, uh, alarm systems, surge protectors, concealed weapons, which I know nothing about, but I know the place where we live. Um, All things that we look to for protection, some that may help more than others. But what is our first line of defense in every circumstance, any situation? Which doesn't mean that we're ignoring the other practical helps and and protection. Um, But we need to remember that our protection from all things that can ultimately harm us doesn't come from the policies, it doesn't come from the gimmicks or the weapons or the mass, but from God. So Ezra here, he's uh, he's fully committed to the Word of God. He's practicing it, teaching the people what it means to live as a priesthood, uh, among the nations. So he does this pass and review, and he notices something striking. There are no Levites registered. In chapter 7, we're told that it was op- this, this journey back, this, this return is open to Levites and, and the priests. They could all go, but there's none of them among the people. You know, what does that tell us? Did they just did they forget to pack? Did they know what time that you're leaving? the Levites are God's chosen among the chosen people of Israel. They're the first fruit offering to God to serve Him, serve the priests in the temple. We don't see any of them here. We don't know the exact reasons for this, but it does show us some complexity, some 
maybe resistance to leave Babylon and make this journey back to Judah and Jerusalem. So that the people need to remind it, as you and I do this morning, it can be easier to prefer life in Babylon. And whatever wealth and status protection that may come with it. Trusting in the protection of what we can see here in touch, what we've accumulated for ourselves. But recognizing we've been set apart by God. We are called to something differently. We see that in how Ezra responds here, preparing the people for this journey. His commitment to this mission really, it shows in his planning, it shows in the prayer that he encourages as well as the praise of the people once they get to Jerusalem. So that's how we're going to look at this. Planning, prayer, and praise. Now we introduced our children to Latin several years ago and they've, they've just finished up some Latin uh, in this term. But when we first started talking about Latin and the culture surrounding that uh, language, we used to call them Latin lunches. And uh, at one of these Latin lunches, we learned that the males in a predominantly Roman culture, they would be given three to four names. Uh, well, the females would, would uh, just take the one name of the clan and then a number, um, which may sound you know, somewhat demeaning, but we, we still do something like this when a couple is married. A woman takes on the name of her husband so that the family is identified through uh, the man's name, his ancestry. And we see this in chapter 8, as families are identified through uh, the leading male. And each one of the names here, except for one, I believe, Joab, each one of these names can be found among the list of those who returned 80 years earlier. So it shows that the families in that first exile, they, they weren't complete yet uh, after that first wave. It shows a continuity. They all had to be, be registered. Their lineage is actually traceable. They have a pure Jewish ancestry, very important for this rebuilding, reconstituting of the people of God. And yet no Levites. No caretakers of the house of God. Um, so part of Ezra's planning is to gather the right people uh, for the journey. Lots of, of riches, lots of, of vessels for the temple, um, but to return with no additional manpower to actually uh, serve in the temple would be a problem. So Ezra's giving his attention to this. I'm not surprised um, by the wisdom he shows here in sending for the Levites. And they respond. About 40 leaders of these Levite families, 220 servants are approached. They pack and then they return uh, to join the group, all within about a week's uh, time frame. But they may have been hesitant to go at first. There's, there's danger in this journey. You think about that. Okay, a lifestyle in Babylon compared to you know, being a servant in the temple. Eh, okay. Exchanging the protection or perceived protection in Babylon compared to, well, a small group of Israelites living in Judah. Eh. But the good hand of the Lord brought them. They left everything in Babylon for the mission of God's kingdom to go, to, to being a priesthood to the nation. So just let that sink in for a second. Would you leave? Would you? What are we prepared to leave for the kingdom of God? In most cases, 
You know, the protections that, that we enjoy, they look pretty good. During our time in St. Louis, we got to know the McReynolds family, spent some time in fellowship with them, and at least one of them had grown up in the mission field. And we learned sometime after seminary that they had taken a position with MTW, a mission to the world, to serve in Madagascar, which was just ground-up training, learning the language, learning the culture. And we found out the other day that uh, Rebe, uh, she's expecting another child, and they're looking for a way to get from the, the village area that they're staying into the larger city where there's medical, medical facilities to help with the delivery. And uh, they even contacted uh, MAF for a flight to bring them over there, which was denied by the government, and so they don't know what they're really going to do at this point. But it got me thinking again about you know, where they've been and what care and protection they've given up to serve in such a faraway place with so many without so many things that they have known, that we know for protection from day to day. And we, we may not all be called to, to serve in that way, but, but would you? Does life in the kingdom and the, the urgency of the gospel message weigh on us, drive us to consider what we may need to give up, leaving things, leaving places? And at times like this, I know if you're like me, we're more than ready to go back to normal, you know, to, to get back to what we perceive as normal. Um, but is that a good and healthy normal uh, for our families, for the church? I mean, maybe the Lord is showing us uh, through these things that things that we can do without, or maybe should do without, in pursuit of godliness. So this small group of people leaving Babylon, um, but they are called of God with a purpose, a mission to the nations. So Ezra's not quite done with the planning here, verses 24 through 30. Uh, he sets apart leading men of the priests, uh, the task of guarding these vessels, the silver and the gold for the temple. Let me pick up in verse 24. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 dariks and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of silver, and the gold, and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. So again, we see great discretion here on the part of Ezra in leading the people. He's preparing for uh, the perils of this journey by entrusting the priests with this responsibility. And notice how he motivates them. You know, he doesn't threaten them. He doesn't say, you know what, if any, if any coin, if any ounce of this gold is missing, when you get there, you know, it's your head. You're sending, you know, the king's going to be after you. No, he motivates them with by reminding them who they are, by reminding them who God is. 
actually appeals to the holiness of God and their identity as those set apart for service. So just a couple things to take from this. One is that we need to guard well the resources that God has entrusted to us, entrusted to the church, praying for faithfulness and integrity. On the, the part of the session, the diaconate, Amber's, she uh, keeps the books. You know, those entrusted with dispersing these funds. You know, hardly a week goes by when you can't find in some new source some example of scandal or, or embezzlement from those with this type of responsibility. Um, so the temptation is there. We need those appropriate uh, safeguards. Uh, I'm very grateful for the, the honesty and the transparency uh, that the session here has with, with Amber. It's not to be taken lightly. Another thing I want us to see here is that our faithfulness, our obedience to the Lord, is ultimately determined by how we perceive God. If He is holy, if He is high and lifted up, if He's rescued us from eternal punishment, stamped His name upon us in Christ, and we believe that, that's pretty strong motivation. I mean, love is the greatest motivator at all. We, we will die uh, for what we truly love from the depths of our hearts. So when we see God as loving and merciful, and then we see His holiness and His justice and His perfection, and we put all those attributes together, we are in awe. We are amazed. Moved to a deeper love and obedience to Him. So let me ask you, how do you perceive God? So much of the fruit we bear as Christians is a reflection of how we view the Lord. Planning, but before they set out, Ezra leads them in prayer. Uh, focused prayer here, which is accompanied by fasting. We read in, in 21 through 23. You know, for most of my life as a Christian, growing up in the church, I knew about fasting, uh, but really believed that those days were pretty much over when it came to fasting. You know, we read about fasting in the Old Testament, Places like 2 Chronicles 20, Judah's under siege and they need the Lord's help. And so uh, the king declares a fast across the whole land. Other examples in Esther 4. Esther, um, right before she goes before the king, she asks Mordecai and the people to, to fast just to show the seriousness of this, uh, of this situation. Then we get to the New Testament in places like Matthew 6 and Luke chapter 5 and Jesus talks about fasting. So this is not some dead practice in the church or you know, not observed by the super spiritual folks. That was kind of my impression growing up. It was this sort of legalistic, over-the-top you know, practice that made people feel good about their spirituality. Um, now Jesus does have to correct the Pharisees at one point and say that fasting while the bridegroom is present doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You need to celebrate you feast when the Messiah is in your midst. But when He's gone, it's a time for fasting. And if you're fasting so that people admire your spirituality or you just enjoy sharing about your latest fast, well, then you're missing the point altogether. That's the fasting of the Pharisee. But Jesus, He says, if, He doesn't say if you fast, but when you fast. So even though the Spirit of Christ is, is present with us, is adopted sons and daughters of God, we long for His return in body. So there are times to fast privately, times to fast corporately in the life of the church. 
I know some have brought in this idea of just going without something for an extended period of time. Maybe you don't watch TV or check social media for a little while. But the truest definition of fasting is to go without food during the daylight hours. That was considered the regular fast. And to do that for a spiritual purpose. Not to make ourselves feel better, but to have our our minds, our appetites directed to God. We hunger for Him. We long for Him to, to hear, to answer our prayers, to grant us clarity, to give us guidance. Fasting reminds us that there is something more important than the food we're going without. Move us away from self-indulgence. Here's what Cornelius Plantinga said. I appreciate this language. It says, Full stomachs and jaded palates take the edge from our hunger and thirst for righteousness. They spoil the appetite for God. And that is one reason why God appoints fasting as something as a regular part of our spiritual disciplines. And so we may fast out of grief. We may fast with a desire for protection. That's what Ezra and the people do here. Um, I know I have a lot of growing to do in this area. I don't often think about fasting or, or using fasting as a, a channel for my prayers. But they, but they really go together. Prayer and fasting. We need to consider this as part of our spiritual journey. Uh, so they fast and pray uh, with a posture of humility, uh, seeking the Lord's protection here. Because this is a long journey. We're talking about four months here. I think it's about 900 miles. There's no border patrol. There's no law enforcement. Um, so you can imagine the people wearing masks, jumping out <laughs> like bandits and robbers along the way. Almost expected in a journey like this. Especially with the amount of wealth that the people had with them. So they seek the Lord in prayer and He protects them. Um, really an opportunity to show the King, the surrounding people, the power of God uh, in caring for them. And asking, asking for some protection from the King would not have been wrong, but Ezra determines in his conscience before the Lord that this was not the time to ask for this. He and the people fast and pray, uh, trusting in the Lord's protection. That's what we read in the wisdom of the Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. and He will direct your paths. Um, the psalmist, uh, in the face of danger, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. So the Lord is our first line of defense. Prayer, our, our greatest weapon of protection from those who would harm us. So do you believe that? Do you believe all the ways that we can be protected, that seeking the Lord in prayer has the greatest power? God hears our plea, protects His own. Here's John chapter 10 where Jesus says to His disciples, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them. And they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. So those who are in Christ are under His protection. And we've talked about this over the last several weeks, that you know this faith journey that we are on, it's not just sitting back in your easy chair down this perfectly straight, wide road. Uh, this is hard. This is a treacherous journey. There is distress, threats, affliction along the way from our, from our own selves, from our flesh, the world, the devil. But our faith is in God 
who protects, has power over all His enemies, over all our enemies. So brothers and sisters, we need to remind each other of this. That God is protecting us from what we need protecting from the most. And His character, just like I mentioned earlier, His his sovereignty over all things must be before us. And we're going to have a really hard time believing this. We're understanding passages like Luke 21. Here's verse 16 at Luke 21. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they shall put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. So you'll be betrayed and die, not a hair of your head will perish. What's going on? You pray for safety on the drive home from this place, or on a trip, and there's an accident. Someone you know or love is gone. We pray for safety during a a pandemic, but the virus still attacks those that we love. Did God not hear this? Does Does He protect some of the time? Does no one will snatch them out of my hand? We know we are held in the palm of His hand. And so that the pain and the confusion and the hurt is still painful. It's still confusing. It's still hurtful. But it is not overlooked. It's not missed by the protecting hand of our God. He's orchestrating all things, using even the evil that comes against us, even death itself, to accomplish the good work that He has begun. So if it, if it's expendable, God, God may give. He may take it away. But what lasts? Life eternal and His glorious presence. That cannot be taken away. He protects us for His glory. I know you've heard me say this and more than once from behind this pulpit. But your life, my life, not ultimately belong to you or to me. Your story and mine, as significant as that is, is only a small piece of the greater story of God's redeeming work in Christ. Restoring all things to Himself. You exist for Him. The story is about Him. So from conception to the grave, what ultimately matters for you, for me, for any other human being, is the glory of God. He is glorified in His judgment. He is glorified in the preserving and protecting of the saints. So verse 31, we get to the end of the chapter and the people, uh, they make the journey. They arrive in Jerusalem. Uh, The Lord answers their prayer. There there are no attacks. Everyone arrives safely uh, with uh, the gifts for the temple. After resting a few days, uh, these gifts are weighed out, recorded. Not not one ounce is missing. All uh, was in order by the good hand of God. I'll just make, make a quick application here on this. We're looking at the praise of the people. You know, here's a, a thousand miles, four months to make this journey. How much of that journey do we read about? Like in verses uh, 31 through 32. Okay, pretty much nothing about the journey. Um, we're, we're, we're told so very little about it, which, which, is, which means the point, the emphasis is not on the journey, but the fact that they arrived safely in Jerusalem. So in our Bible reading, in our Bible uh, reflection and our teaching, we need to place the emphasis where the Bible places the emphasis. 
So there's a proportionality to good biblical interpretation. If the Bible mentions something once or in passing, it's really important because it's in the Bible. But it's not as important for us to consider as those words of instruction that we hear over and over and over again. Sometimes I think we can, we can fixate on a word or a particular teaching that the Bible doesn't talk very much about and then we sort of read the Scriptures through that lens. Uh, that's not mentioned as much. We need to guard against this for to handle the Word of God rightly. After bringing the gifts to Jerusalem, people give praise to God through these offerings. I'll pick it up at verse 35. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river. And they aided the people and the house of God. So he had protected them. He delivered them safely uh, to Jerusalem. And now they fulfill their obligation to him by offering these sacrifices. And then you know, they, they bring the, the commission to the king and his leaders. So it seems they had the, the right priority here, right? Give God the glory. Offer sacrifices to Him. It had been a long time since they have been able to, to sacrifice in this way, in the temple. And this is where we see the greatest protection of all. Right here. The sacrifices are given as an atonement for sin. For their unfaithfulness, which, which we've seen, even somewhat uncommitted in leaving the protection of Babylon, pagan lands. God has protected them from attacks. He's protected them from the ambushes. And now we see His protection from the greatest threat of all, from death itself, from being cut off from Him eternally. We read in 1 Peter 3 that Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. That sacrifice has been made for you, for me. For all who call upon His name. So we are protected by the blood of Christ. from the only enemy that can ultimately destroy us. So as we seek the Lord, as we seek the Lord for protection and care from day to day, let's, let's praise Him. Let's give Him thanks for the protection that's already there in the Lord Jesus. Just over a week ago, where there was a Formation for World War II era um, planes flew in formation in the northwest part of Arkansas and they came and they, they hit the, the major medical facilities as they were flying central Arkansas and then up to uh, the northeast portion and uh, beautiful uh, warbirds. But I thought you know, keep keeping those types of airplanes flying takes a lot of work. Um, they rust, they break down, and most of them would do very little good in an air battle today. We admire them, we showcase them, but in a moment, they're gone. They can't protect us from a, a way of life that will endure. They can't. This life comes only through Christ, our great high priest, our good shepherd who holds us in the palm of his hand. And one day, friends, one day we are going to stand before God and he will show us what we have trusted in for our protection. Will it be the blood of the Lamb? 
with humble hearts before God? Or will it be just the disappearing protections of the world? And we, we can say this. We can say the Lord is our provider. He's our protector. But it matters little if we do not seek Him. Um, if we don't implore His favor on this day and for the journey that's ahead. Will you do that with me? Let's pray together. Lord God, we do look to you. You are our provider and you are our protector. Lord, we thank you for the very practical means of your grace. Um, even if it's an uncomfortable face mask for a little while. Lord, you provide these things for us. Help us to look to you, to trust you as our protector. And Lord, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that as we go from this place, that we would be faithful in obedience, that we would grow in grace and a hunger and a thirsting after you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.